for things to happen on a Tuesday. At least here, it's rare. Apparently in Japan, it's not quite so out of the question to have a big fight, a big boxing match on a Tuesday night. I woke up at my usual time and realized that the fight that I was that I thought was happening tonight was actually happening this morning at 8 a.m. I didn't get to watch it live, but later in the day it was easy enough to find the full bout on YouTube. It was fun, it was quick, it was a demolition of the Filipino Flash, Nonito Donaire, who is 39, get, getting demolished by Naoya Inoue, who I think is 27, maybe 28. Um, they're both um, fighting at 118 pounds, which is bantam weight, chicken weight, I like to call it, because bantam is a type of chicken. And, uh, yeah, it was very exciting, very odd way to wake up in the morning, you know, to have that much excitement happening. I, since I didn't watch it live, I was following what was happening on Twitter. Uh, people were updating and it was fun. It was great. Uh, I wish all the fights happened so early in the morning and, you know, it gives you like a boost, you know, if you're interested in fights. You can <laughs> you can get that bit of excitement to wake you up. Uh, anyway, that was cool. Um, I went for a run. I've been running again lots. I went for a particularly hard run this morning. I'm using a new plan for... I've been running for a few years and... I've gotten injured a few times. Um, and you know, over that, because I didn't start with a lot of knowledge about running, I've learned along the way uh, that mostly I just get repetitive uh, stress injuries or overuse injuries, which are when you're covering too much distance in too little time. Essentially, I was either running too fast or I was increasing the amount of running I was doing per week too quickly. Uh, I've also had shoe issues at some points. Uh, right now I'm doing okay. I feel like for the most part I've learned to not go too hard to rely. Well, one of the things I wanted to talk about is like one of the two books uh, that I've read recently in the last couple of years to help me with my over running problem. And it, it came highly recommended from people on various forums online. It's called Marathon. You can do it. Written by Jeff Galloway. And this was, I used this book when I was coming back from injury. So I, I had been injured a lot and I was like, I need something that's pretty light, pretty easy. Uh, and in order to run, um, usually these programs run about 16, 18 weeks. Jeff Galloway's plan is like 26 weeks. So already that tells you, you know, it's taking a lot, you know, you're, 
your training is spread out over a longer period of time. One other huge innovation or, you know, uh, measure that he, that he implements, that he recommends in order to reduce the stress of running is introducing running breaks, walking breaks, uh, whenever you're out there. So for every, for example, for every four minutes that you run, you walk for 30 seconds or you walk for a minute and you do that repeatedly right from the get go, even in a race in order to give your body, you know, to, to give your body a bit of rest uh, while you're exercising, while, while you're, you know, in these periods of intense stress. And for the most part, I found, anyway, I was able to finally, finally complete a marathon length run using uh, Jeff Galloway's method. And then this year I thought, well, maybe I'll try something different because there's other plans that are also highly recommended. So uh, when I first started running, my goal was just to like run five kilometers really, really fast, as fast as I could. And I got all right at it. You know, I, I met my goals. But then I injured myself. And I... Th- can't remember precisely, but I think the injury was both due to uh, improper training. I really thought that I could set a personal best every time I got out there, a personal best time, which was foolish. Uh, (laughs) Now I know it's a really bad way to train. Um, And maybe I was running a bit too often too. Anyway, Oh man, yeah, that, that, that last time that I did like 5k, like really, really quickly felt really awesome. Uh, and I was like, wow, this is easy now. Um, but anyway, so all that to say that I like running fast, you know, I like having fast goals, but having the Galloway plan in my hands, I learned to appreciate running slowly. Um, a lot more uh, to the point, you know, where I could, I didn't mind it. I wasn't, uh, I wasn't bored. I wasn't desperate to get faster. I was just like, nah, I'm doing the plan. I'm following the plan. And if I follow the plan, I won't get injured. Now that I have run a marathon length run, I've never competed in a race. I don't know if I will. Maybe, maybe in the future, in a couple of years. Who knows? Uh, but now that I've done that part, I thought maybe I should try running that faster. Because, you know, that's <laughs> where, is, where else to go but faster. So I got a new book uh, called Run Less, Run Faster. Um, which has a collection of authors, uh, Bill Pierce, Scott Murr, Ray Moss. They've got another few co-authors listed in it, but it's basically billed as the experts of, uh, first, F-I-R-S-T, which I can't remember what it stands for, but it's like basically, um, 
Furman Institute of Running and Scientific Training. They want to put like a scientific spin on their running formula. And it's true. There's a scientific component to it of like trial and error. Um, but it's a really small sample size. <laughs> so even though... Yeah, they're, they're doing a scientific trial and they're, you know, they're optimizing that scientific method of running. They're still doing it with a fairly small sample size. And it's obviously for people who are already into running. It's not really a beginner book. Jeff Galloway's book is absolutely awesome introduction to, for somebody who wants to complete a marathon. Uh, I found like a lot of the information he provided is really, um, really beneficial. And the run and walk method, like making walking such an integral part of running, uh, was really helpful in allowing me to complete the distance. Uh, so I went from like early, poorly training, where I thought speed was everything. And this is before I wanted to finish a marathon. So, you know, it was only 5K. But I went from that to like, Wanting to do a really long distance in a really in a, in a relatively slow time, uh, which was great. And then now I'm back to like trying to think about going fast with run less, run faster. And I don't know if it's. I mean, like I can see some things are going well. Some things. Um, I feel like I'm definitely I'm finding out that I still have. Not the same speed I used to have, but maybe somewhere close to it, uh, which is nice, uh, which is interesting. I'm, I feel like I am sore a lot more often. And the whole point of the run less, run faster, well, one of the key components is that by running less, you are enjoying a lot more rest time so it's like in a way i guess it borrows some of the same principles as jeff galloway's book does you know where rest uh is a key component of the running plan it's also an 18 a 16 week plan so it's like rather short so you have to be you know you have to have a it's a sort of plan that you need like a really um you need to have a foundation before you approach the plan uh, because the long runs are already at 13 kilometers at the beginning of the plan, right? Uh, whereas many other plans start much lower for the long run. Usually uh, about 8 or 10. Uh, and it makes a difference. Those extra, like, you know, that, that, that even if it's just a few kilometers, it makes, it makes a big difference, you know? Um, so the whole point of the run less, one of the other key components of the run less, run faster, program besides having a lot of rest time you also go a lot harder on each run so you don't do lots of long easy running like you do with the Galloway plan you just take you, you just basically run three days a week and you go one day of like sprints one day of a semi-fast run called a tempo run uh you know, because you, you pick up a particular pace that you're going to run. And, and the book is like pretty good about, uh, giving you guidelines, um, 
and you know really tells you if you can run 5k at this distance then you should try to run your tempo run at this pace uh, so it really yeah it really bases a lot of it off of your your 5k time which i don't have one you know it's been such a long time since i ran 5k on purpose that uh, i'm kind of like learning what my pace is still so i'm fidgeting around with it um and then the third run it's a long run and unlike most clients which tells you tell you to run your long run pretty slow uh this one wants you to push push the pace a little bit not quite your goal pace but sometimes your goal pace and sometimes a little bit fast ah no the long run is never faster than your goal pace um but the tempo runs are faster than your goal pace. Uh, anyway, so that's uh, that's running. That's how running is going. My knee has been having a little something the last couple of weeks. I think it's doing better today. But then whenever the knee feels better, I feel like my left ankle starts acting up. It's my right knee, left ankle. And they go back and forth between like, which one wants to be complaining and i'm doing a lot of icing i'm doing a little bit of very minor like strength strength training just calisthenics like you know some lunges some squats some step ups um stuff just to strengthen the muscles without having the the pressure the the, the impact pressure of like of going out and running some more anyway those are the two books i'm reading and uh, <laughs> the two books I've read recently in regards to running. Uh, I think, and I think I've, I'll borrow some from the Galloway, uh, even if I'm doing the, the Run Less, Run Faster book program now, I think I'm still going to borrow some elements from the Galloway program, particularly on the nutrition side. Uh, because the meal plan that they, that Galloway provides for pre-runathon, pre-marathon running, well, I found it to be excellent. I found it to be like really spot on. You basically just have to eat like eight little meals the day before. <laughs> uh, and make sure they're, you know, the right proportions of carbs and proteins and sugars and salts and yeah, the whole gamut of things. Uh, anyway, then I found the plan to be particularly good. Uh, and it's left me feeling, even though I didn't do a good job of running the marathon length run, I, it wasn't because of lack, uh, because of poor nutrition. <laughs> so I'll, I'll, I'll take that. I'll take that with me. Thinking about this next plan. What I want to talk about today is a third book that I've read very recently. I just finished it like two days ago. Actually, you know, when, when I read running books, I don't read them cover to cover. I just jump ahead to where, I mean, like usually the introduction is like nothing. Um, and then you just jump like two or three chapters ahead to like actually look at the plans. And then you read the chapters where the plan is laid out. And then you look at any, and, you, and then eventually you look at supplemental information. Uh, and that's where I got like the recommendation that I do a little bit of strength calisthenics, you know, for a bit more strength training than I than I normally get. 
but this next book, uh, which is called The Premonition by Michael Lewis, I read cover to cover. Uh, it is uh, on my favorite subject, uh, the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic. And it deals, it's a very, very well-written book. It is a documentation of the many experts and their stories who would eventually attempt to formulate a cohesive pandemic response for the United States. The book takes, takes you to the stories of Charity Jean, uh, Carter Mercer, uh, who else is there? Laura and Bob Glass. Um, and there's a few other personas. Anyway, like, it's pretty good uh, in terms of, like, a dramatic retelling of these people's lives. It is excellent. It's a page-turner. Um, it is not... in. It's not dry. It really, like, goes in on, like, the human interest part of the story here and really makes you feel a connection with all the with all the with all the people who are involved in this plan and this plan basically uh the attempt to have a plan begins in the during the bush administration years in 2005 when he creates a pandemic task force after having read a book about the 1918 flu pandemic and um and then the task force kind of like gets a lot of money and then they're kind of like disbanded during the Obama years or not as well funded. And then during the Trump years, that gets slashed even further. Um, the, the general gist of it is that the response uh, since the task force was formed, there has been no particular time neither for the swine flu pandemic in 2009, nor the H1N1 pandemic in 2011, nor the Ebola pandemic in 2014. At no time has the response been sufficiently, uh, can, can be said to be sufficiently adequate. Um, and the sense is that up to this point, the world has been lucky not, none of those uh, turn out to be globally terrible uh, in the way that SARS-CoV-2 has. Now, what I'm going to focus on is this bit that was uh, authored, uh, led by a person who was at the time the second-in-command at Public Health in California, Dr. Charity Dean. And she, she, she's just an interesting character. Uh, she's very fascinating. She's very, she doesn't tell much of her personal story, but you'd get a lot of the story of her as a public health officer. And she seems amazing and really, really, um, headstrong and brave. Uh, and she writes this pandemic plan, like you know, like they've they've, they've had, the U.S. has had like a very difficult time. This is this plan comes into effect. Uh, I think it's being written at the 
in at the end of March or early April of 2020. And there, this, this ragtag team of, of officials or former officials is who call themselves Red Dawn. It, anyway, after a horrendously hilarious campy movie from the 80s in which the Soviets invade United States, hence the name Red Dawn. Uh, and then this ragtag team of uh, American heroes must uh, halt the Soviet invasion. Um, anyway, <laughs> so much info there, so much unnecessary info. So, so, so Charity Dean, um, and she finds herself, you know, after she she has been feeling since January 2019, I think maybe even since December 2019, that there's something serious going on. She's watching the news coming out of China. She's not waiting for, like, official word from China. She is, like many people, just simply watching what the Chinese are doing. And it's like, uh, you know, red uh, alarm buttons are going off everywhere because they are clearly not behaving as though it's a minor thing. It's not like a flu pandemic. It's not a flu that's just about to go away, right? You know, they're, they're treating it with such seriousness. You know, they're building hospitals in days. Uh, they're quarantining entire city. The, the entire city of Wuhan was under lockdown, right? This is at the end of January of 2020. So clearly something uh, very, very worrisome is going on. And Dr. Charity Dean, she's trying to raise the alarm about this uh, in California since the end of January. And, you know, nobody listens to her or nobody wants to listen to her. There's very little political will, the same as the rest, as most of the world, really, not just the United States. Uh, there's very little political will to do something before things get really bad. Uh, and then when things get really bad, She's asked, you know, anyway, I'm, I'm leaving a lot of the story out of, as to how she gets to be in this position, but she is asked to write a pandemic response plan. Uh, and, you know, for California. But she realizes at that point that she can't just write one for California because it's everywhere already. So she decides that she's going to write a plan for the whole United States. And I'm gonna read like a page and a bit, maybe, uh, just to just so I give you a sense of her plan, which I think is radical uh, and kind of amazing. And also, it's no, it, <laughs> it, it's so clear why it was never, ever, ever implemented. <laughs> um, the national, okay, and here I am reading from page 234 of Michael Lewis's The Premonition. The national plan ran to several pages and had three big features. The first was for the president to announce a stay-at-home order for the entire country until he was able to test as much as was needed. As he did this, he would explain the second feature. The rules for reopening. Each community would receive one of three designations, hot, warm, cool, 
based on a few simple metrics. The number of cases per capita, the percentage of its COVID-19 tests that came in positive, the percentage of its hospital beds that were occupied. A community that was cool and more or less virus-free would live with few restrictions. A community that was hot with virus lived under a stay-at-home order. A community that was warm, it had virus circulating but reproducing at slower rates, could could relax some of its rules. It could have weddings and funerals, for instance, and open public transport. These restrictions could be scaled up or down based on the heat of the community at any given time, she wrote. She realized that all this would need to be displayed on a dashboard so that people could check the status of their zip code every day. She picked red, yellow, and green to represent hot, warm, and cold, then thought, then had second thoughts. That's how, that looks dumb. It's just the colors of the stoplights. But the modeling team thought it was great. The simpler and more familiar, the better. Later, she changed it from three colors to eight each with its own menu of social interventions, all inspired by the plan written written years ago by Richard Hatchett and Carter Mercer. But the basic idea remained the same. As scientists learned more about the virus, the government would update the social interventions so that they remained as potent and as targeted as possible. If it emerged, for example, that children could not be made seriously ill by the virus or spread the virus to others, there might never be a reason to close schools. Her most curious idea, given how she had gone about her job as a local public health officer, was how she hoped for the plan to be enforced. She didn't want to depend upon the bravery of some local public health officer. What I really wanted was for it not to be enforced, said Charity. I wanted it to say, we're not going to come rescue you. You are going to rescue yourselves. The local dashboards would allow everyone to see who in their neighborhood had been infected, who had gone to the hospital for it, and who had died. It's radical accountability, said Charity. Government has a role, but its role is to empower the grassroots by giving them data. If clusters of illnesses occur, genomic sequencing would reveal how that had happened, and who was responsible, as Charity sometimes put it. You know who farted in the crowded room. The president would need to issue an executive order to make an exemption for medical privacy laws, but that seemed a small price to pay for for a million American lives. Highly specific personal data would leave no room for people in any neighborhood to retreat into a private reality in which they could imagine that the virus either didn't exist or was overblown. You had to bring the carnage in front of people's faces for them to see it, said Charity. If some areas of the country need to need to hit bottom, so be it. The virus would enforce the plan. If the citizens in certain zip codes still insisted on some fiction, the virus would expose the lie, and they would soon find themselves isolated and unwelcome in other parts of the country where businesses had reopened and a semblance of ordinary daily life had resumed. It wasn't just the effects of the virus that needed to be mitigated. The effects of the culture did too. For the plan to work, Charity thought, 
It needed to be locally controlled. Each zip code would be able to see what it needed to do if it wanted to relax restrictions. And each zip code would have its own leaders who would know the best ways to encourage good behavior. The one shot America had at behaving well, and thus saving itself, was to remove the feeling that the government was imposing restrictions on people and reinstill the idea that people were imposing order on themselves to fight a common enemy. I'll leave it at that. Um, so yeah, I feel like <laughs> you can immediately see how this radical accountability uh, was very much... I, I don't remember anybody... Like, I joked about making... Uh, <laughs> public information uh, available, make, making public who got COVID and where. I know that in some places in the country um, they would announce every day where transmission was happening. Uh, I think this, this I, as far as I know, this happened in Nova Scotia. Um, probably stopped a long time ago now. Um, and that seems radical. I feel like Charity Dean's plan is to take it a step farther so that the whole community knows exactly where the virus is, which I think is an amazing idea. I feel like it could have worked uh, in some sense. But, you know, like, I myself, I am so pro-privacy being... <laughs> uh, all the time and you know and, and not really trustful of government with my personal data that this plan seems like you know there's an immediate like red flag that goes up for me uh, but at the same time it's like I joked that this was necessary but I never really went so far as to formulate it into this radical accountability plan uh I mean, like, there is a certain level where this is Charity Dean's plan, Dr. Charity Dean's plan is functioning on, on some level around public shaming. But I feel like she really wants to emphasize another part of it, which is the collective empowerment portion, where if you know exactly what's going on in your community, you can act and you can be proud of your community when it's doing well. And you know, you know, you know precisely why you're doing well and where. The other thing that she talks about, which didn't happen here, didn't happen in the States, uh, was using genomic sequencing, uh, extensively so that you knew precisely where you got the virus. So say if the, the sequence from your infection, uh, could tell you if you got it at work or if you got it from your kids at school or if you got it while shopping, you know, if you could, if you were doing enough genomic sequencing, if you're sequencing all, uh, infections, then you could trace precisely how the virus is moving. But we didn't do that. Um, so yeah, her, her super ambitious plan, uh, never happened. But, uh, and you know, it, this was the first time when I first read it, 
it was the first time encountering such a plan that wasn't like a joke about public shaming, um, which is where I, yeah, anyway, that was the angle that I took. When, <laughs> and I remember uh, a friend also thinking that when the COVID alert app came out, that it would actually uh, start beeping when you b- pass somebody's house who ha- who had COVID, <laughs> which I, <laughs> which seems ridiculous, but you know maybe that's what we needed. I don't know. Uh, it's anyway the the saddest part about the book, besides the fact that like none of this. Um, None of these really smart plans, or at least at least radical plans, uh, were implemented. Uh, the majority of the response was like, "Well, let's wait and see. Let's wait and see." Uh, the CDC really bungled the response. Uh, they really, really didn't raise any alarms until it was too late, and then they came out with a faulty test. Rather than using the WHO's test, they released their own faulty tests in early February, and then they bungled them again mid-February, and they, you know, America's basically lost a whole month without good tests. Uh, I mean, anyway, like I said, America's did poorly, and the majority of the rest of the world did equally terrible or not uh, <laughs> maybe not equally terrible but pretty bad um we haven't collectively we haven't done a particularly good job uh of dealing with the virus and yeah new waves are coming up and <laughs> we are radically moving in the opposite direction of where charity dean dr charity dean wanted to be where the government is just like supplying us with the data necessary to make informed decisions. The government's actually moving towards supplying us with less and less data every day. I, yeah, there was a story recently that the, um, the federal government will stop supplying the provinces with rapid tests at the end of this year. Um, yeah, anyway, the the whole plan now is just to fly fucking blind, uh, and pray for the best. And we're seeing, uh, yeah, there's, there's, there's also, like, I feel like there's not enough. (laughs) We're just having, like, this recurrent series of bad, uh virus-related events or health-related events. We had it with the hepatitis in children. Now we have monkeypox. And I feel like the the response keeps being similar of, like, minimizing and not really providing enough data, not really letting the public, you know, that there's a whole bunch, there's a whole... um there's a whole portion of like the government response that is based around not panicking the public. And I don't know where this comes from. Maybe I'll look into it. Where this idea that the, I mean, okay. So I can remember a few instances 
where the public has panicked in stupid ways. Uh, so I remember when, uh, after 9-11, there was a series of anthrax attacks in the United States. I can't remember how many people died, but a few people died. Anthrax was being sent to the mail. And uh, at some point, George W. Bush said that, you know, you could protect yourself with duct tape and plastic. And lots of people went out there to buy duct tape and plastic. Eventually, if... <laughs> oh. These ridiculous attempts, you know, they thought they could seal their homes from anthrax. And it's like, actually, no, it's bad. You know, if, if you if your home is not breathing, if you completely sealed it off from outside air, that is worse for you. Uh, you know, because you'll likely open your mail indoors. Um, and there's also, of course, at the beginning of the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic, a uh, beginning of lockdowns, uh, people went nuts buying toilet paper, right? Um, even though it wasn't quite so publicized that diarrhea was one of the common symptoms of SARS-CoV-2. Uh, but anyway, it, it was not necessary. Uh, at least not necessary in my household, because I have a bidet. Um, much more efficient unless the water goes out. And then what do I do? I don't know. Paper, back to paper, back to sandpapering my ass. Anyway, um, so yeah, there are, you know, there are examples of uh, people panicking and doing silly things. Certainly. But, I don't know, I feel like if you provide people with sufficient data, if you trust the populace, uh, you, you, you will always have a range of responses. You will never have a uniform, all-out response. Uh, whether you give us a lot of information or government give us very little information, people, there, there'll be a range of interpretations to that, right? And I feel like basing so much government response on the fear that people will panic uh, is counterproductive uh, because it just assumes or gives too much power to like one side of the reaction, like one probably small portion of the reaction and kind of like ignores the larger contingent who will have a more measured response. Anyway, I feel... <laughs> Did I get to this? Besides the depressing uh, ending, which is the fact that this plan was never implemented, these experts also had other plans, you know, had, had previously created plans. Uh, I think it was alluded to in the, in, in the, the bit I read. Uh, besides them not being listened to, um which is depressing. The other depressing thing, and I, this is so, I guess, indicative of, of of where Dr. Charity Dean is located in the world, too. Uh, you know, right by Silicon Valley, they, they all disparage, you know, you know, they're black-pilled um, 
finally learn precisely what a failure American public institutions are, including the CDC, including the presidency, including the leadership of the state of California. Um, they learn what a depressing mess this is, what an unreliable mess uh, this public infrastructure is. And they get it into their heads that the solution is venture capital. <laughs> so it goes from bad to worse. You know, it's anyway, it goes from uh, realizing that public institutions are failing to, and, 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 and sadly, the only possible avenue seen out of that is, uh, private enterprise. Um, which, uh, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> uh, anyway, it's, uh, it's quite a, it's a riveting book. Um, one of the the opening things that comes out is about a father son a fa- father daughter. Uh, actually, it's a daughter who comes out with the project, and her dad is a scientist, so he kind of help, helps her develop it. Um, a, you know how to mitigate pandemics? How to mitigate pandemics? They, you know, she does it as as a science project for her school. I can't remember what the year was. Uh, maybe twenty fifteen. Let me double check on this. Anyway, her name is Laura Glass. And she was 13 at the time, and she wants to do the science fair project uh, about pandemics. And yeah, there's like 2004, 2003, 2004, that she gets her dad to help her out with uh, coding the science project. And they realize like that the most effective or like the 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 one um, non pharmaceutical intervention that would have the highest impact on reducing transmission is closing schools. (laughs) The one thing that, you know, oh my fucking God, they spent, you know, public officials spent so much time here in Canada, elsewhere around the world. They spent so much time debating whether kids could transmit it or not, or or whether they were vulnerable to it. Uh, And yeah, there was all this modeling happening Around, you know, and eventually, uh, Laura and Bob Glass's model gets to like some higher ups, smart people in the White House, and they run it against their own more complicated models. And they realize, oh, right, yeah, closing schools that will like really mitigate transmission. Schools. (laughs) (sighs) But instead of, you know, Acting preventively. <laughs> uh, anyway, everybody knows the story, I guess, about what a mess the yo-yoing of school measures has been. Um, anyway, there you go. Michael Lewis, The Premonition. Great book. Really fun to read. Uh, I wish he had a better ending. I wish he had a more exciting ending. Um... It's really fascinating to read about these people and the efforts, the, the absurd efforts that they go through to try to sound the alarm about the potential dangers of a pandemic and how all that falls on deaf ears for the most part, I guess. Yeah. 
All right. I'll leave it at that. That's my book review for this month. Uh, I think. I don't don't think. (laughs) I'm reading another book about the history of the internet. Uh, the military history of the internet and how we should all be mistrustful of the internet because uh, it was used it was designed as a tool for espionage right from the start for surveillance um, anyway maybe I'll do a review of that later on uh, but maybe not I don't know it's a fascinating topic but it's not quite as shock full of uh, characters the way Michael Lewis uh, has presented the premonition okay I'll talk to you later Bye.